the meantime, uh, as a church, we have committed to helping them once a month with one of our uh, elders coming and preaching there. And so today, Tim and Kim are visiting. So by this time, they should be done with their sermon. Uh, but that is why they're not here. They send their greetings, and they love you guys. So um, that's about it. How about we jump into uh, today's message? Before I do that, I want to acknowledge one thing. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the joy of receiving at our home a new friend. Her name is uh, Jackie, and she has been with us for the past two weeks, and she has been a joy to have. She is visiting us from Thailand, and she'll be staying with us for the next year. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because the last two Sundays, she's been coming to church with us. She's been worshiping with us. And it struck me how odd it might be for someone that has never been to church to jump in and to just be part of what we're doing. It struck me, too, that uh, for her to, to sit here and to listen to the messages, it's like jumping into the middle of a TV show that you have no idea what's going on, right? And my wife sometimes starts TV shows, and then she wants me to watch them with her. But she'll just give me like a 30-second recap of what's going on, and then she starts the show, and I'm like, what is going on? It's, it's just not, you know, uh, it, it's, it's unsettling uh, sometimes. And so if you are here for the first time, or if you are joining us maybe in the last few weeks for the first time, and you're not aware or familiar with the Bible or with the story of the Bible, I want to acknowledge that, and I want to tell you, we get it. <laughs> it has to be strange to jump into the middle of a story. Uh, this story that we're reading right now is the book of First and Second Samuel. And today we're going to continue unpacking uh, First and Second Samuel. We believe that all of Scripture um, is, has been given to us as a gift, you know, for us to be encouraged by it, for us to be challenged by it, for us to be built up by the Word of God. And so, here at Trinity, we like to go over books of the Bible in their entirety, entirety so that we don't just pick and choose the things that we want. And so we want to be able to go through the whole counsel of God, and part of that is First and Second Samuel. So I just wanted to acknowledge that if you're new here, the last few weeks may have been a little odd for you because there's been a lot of talk of destruction and death. Uh, and yet, I want you to lean in this morning. I want you to hear uh, what we're saying because in the middle of this story, there is beauty. In the middle of this story, I want you to see that there is beauty in the fact that we serve a God that is a judge but a righteous judge. And so, um, with that said, would you uh, read with me the first uh, 10 verses of chapter uh, 1 of the book of 2 Samuel? So would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Like I said, we're going to read about 10 verses. And it says this, it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And he came to David. He fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and so many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son are dead? Um, and the young man told him, uh, told him, sorry. And the man who, and the young man who told him said, 
by chance, I happened to be in Mount uh, Gilboa, Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you have spoken through your word. Father, thank you that in your your word we have... um, we have wisdom, we have uh, guidance, we have your voice, Father. This word has been inspired and breathed out by you, Lord, and because of that, we trust it, and we sit under it, and we submit to it uh, for your guidance and for everything that we need in life. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, once again, we're jumping into the middle of the story. So, to give you a brief, like my wife, a 30-second recap of where we are, let me catch you up a little bit if you're new here. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel asked God for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations. So, God, as he often does, he gives them exactly what they wanted, which, as you'll see, is not good news. Sometimes, when God gives us what, he want, what we want, he does... So, um, you know, just to, uh, as, as a means of discipline. Now, God gives them the king that they wanted. His name was Saul. He was a very impressive, tall, handsome guy, kind of like me. Just kidding. Um, just kidding. I'm not tall. Um, Saul, Saul, though, turns out to be a pretty lousy king. So God, in his kindness, anoints another, another king. His name is David. Saul, of course, is not thrilled about it, and he opposes God by trying to kill David. You see, Saul failed at what God had asked him to do, and so God anoints a better king. In the last few chapters before today, we saw two things. We saw that God has delivered David from his foolishness, and then we saw that Saul was actually destroyed by his enemies, but truly he was destroyed by his own foolishness, by by his rebellion against God. Today, we jump into the story then, and it's the first chapter of the second book of Samuel. And here, what I want us to see, as we just read, is again, the story of the death of Saul. What I want us to see here, though, is that death awaits those who follow their own heart. You see, last week, Josiah walked us through a very difficult passage that told the death of Saul. In that, in that passage, we saw a tragic scene where Saul found himself in such a desperate situation that he took his own life. He did so by falling into his own sword, which is a very different, uh, you know, just not something you hear these days, but, but Saul fell in his own sword. What's important to remember, though, is that though Saul took his own life in that moment with his own sword, the reality is that he had been aiming his sword at himself for a long time. He had decided to reject God. He had pursued his own foolishness. He had pursued his own desires. Now, I say this because time and again, once again, um, Saul rebelled against God's expressed will and direction. And that was exactly what led him to his demise. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you maybe remember that when Saul was anointed king, the Lord had commanded him to do 
a few things, but the main thing was to protect the people of Israel from his enemies. Very specifically, he had named the Philistines, and later on he had named the Amalekites. Both the Philistines and the Amalekites stand in Scripture as the enemies of God. And yet, Saul did not do that. You may remember that Saul and his king, in his, during his reign, he was very passive in the way that he dealt with his enemies, the way that he took care of the enemies that God had commanded him to take care of. With the Philistines, he was happy to let others fight his battles. You may remember that his son Jonathan would at times go and, 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 the, and fight the Philistines. At other times, he would, sell, he would send David to fight the very people that the Lord had uh, anointed him to fight. The Lord had expressly told them, you go and defeat the Philistines. And yet, Saul was passive. You may also remember that the Amalekites, uh, God had um, God directly told Saul to go and get rid of the Amalekites, to defeat the Amalekites. Now in this passage, we will see how these very enemies that Saul decided to get cozy with, the ones that he decided that he was passive in his dealing with are the ones that are going to have to do with his death. First, the Philistines defeated the army of Saul and cornered him to the point that he took his own life, as we talked about last week. And now in this passage, we see that it was an Amalekite, actually, that delivers the news of the death of Saul. So this chapter begins then with a man that shows up in the camp of David. David David is in Ziglag, far from where things are going on, and a man appears. And his appearance already tells us something about this man. He's not bringing good news. This man shows up, and the Bible tells us that he's wearing torn clothes and that he has dirt in his hair. And we know from Scripture that this actually, these are two signs of mourning at the time. This guy had been mourning, and he now comes to David with some news. David knows it's not going to be good news, and yet he asks. As expected, the guy brings some pretty bad news. And for us who have read the previous chapter, we can tell there are some significant discrepancies between what the guy is telling David and what we read in just the previous chapter. So this guy is clearly bad news. (laughs) He is lying about a tragedy, and he's coming to David with an agenda uh, that we don't know about just yet. But we'll talk about this later. Now, what I want us to notice this morning is that the result of Saul's foolishness was his own death. You see, David had been pointing his sword at himself for a while because he had repeatedly rejected God's guidance. He was, to borrow from the poem Josiah read last week, he he wanted to be the captain of his own soul, or so he thought. But to put it as our culture would put it today, he he did as he saw fit and he followed his own heart. And he forged his own path. Sadly, this path that he forged led him to his own death, to his own demise. And by this, I do not mean only physical death, because ultimately we will all one day face uh, physical death. But by this, I mean that his foolishness led Saul to his spiritual and eternal death. Saul deceived himself, thinking that he knew better than God. He thought that he could handle his enemies however way he, whichever way he wanted. He cozied up to the very people that God had told him to put to death. You see, it was his passivity towards the Philistines and his refusal to get rid of the Amalekites that eventually led to his own destruction. I don't know if you know this, but my dad is a vet. 
And uh, uh, mainly he sees cats and dogs. A vet, not as a veteran, but as a veterinarian. Um, and he mainly sees cats and dogs. And so every so often, people would bring, them some, bring him some weird animals. Um, and when I say weird, like really some crazy animals. I remember uh, a couple of things as a kid. Uh, a couple animals that were brought to him, but one of my favorite was the time when they brought two spider monkeys, and they were baby spider monkeys. It was a boy and a girl with a pink and a blue diaper each. It was the cutest thing, and we had so much fun with them. But people brought some random pets to my dad, right? Um, a couple of other examples was this guy that decided to bring uh, a lion. My dad asked him, uh, please don't do that anymore. Uh, and uh, another guy who bought a Bengal tiger. I don't know how you say it, bingle, bingle, bangle, um, but he brought a tiger. Now, neither of these cases went well, but let me tell you what happened to the guy with the tiger. He bought the tiger as a cub, and as you can imagine, it was really cute. And so this guy has his own tiger, and he is playing with a tiger as, he, as you would with a little kitty, right? So he puts it on his chest, and he's wrestling with the tiger. As you can imagine... This does not work out for the guy because he eventually has to leave for a period of time. He left the tiger with the, you know, under the care of other people. And finally, you know, when he gets home, he sees the tiger. The tiger sees him. He jumps into the enclosure. Now this little tiny uh, tiger is now about 500 pounds. He sees his friend. And what does he do? He wants to play with him. And so he jumps on his chest and sits on him and starts killing him with his weight. He's not being violent or anything, but just the very weight of the tiger is crushing this man. Finally, by the grace of God, the tiger gets bored and decides to move. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because my dad always warned me, don't bring predators as pets. I used to, I, you know, I, I, when I was young, I, I loved having weird animals, weird pets, and my dad always told me, like, you should not have predators as pets because they're, they're wild animals and they will eventually hurt you. This man and many others did not listen to my dad and almost paid with his life. You see, it is a dangerous thing to cozy up with a tiger. And so it was with Saul. He got so comfortable with the enemies that God had told him to, to get rid of that it cost him his life. He thought he could keep them under control. He thought that through his cunning and through his planning, he was going to be able to control the things that God told them are your enemies. So let me ask you this morning. Are you like Saul, playing with fire? Are you like Saul, following your own heart and doing whatever you want, giving yourself to the very things that will only bring you death? Are you cozy with the very things that God is calling you to put to death? Part of being a Christian is to be violent against sin. To put to death the works of the enemy. To put to death the passions of the flesh. The Bible calls us directly to get rid of those things. And as believers, we are in a process of sanctification. Where we put to death our temptation, our sins, and the desires of the flesh. Let me ask you this morning. Are you putting them to death? Or are you like Saul, being passive against them? Are you like Saul, passively just waiting for them to one day be your end. As a pastor, let me tell you, uh, there are countless times that I have, meet, uh, that I have met with, with, with people who have been ravaged, whose marriages have been destroyed by the very things that they knew 
that they should have put to death. But instead, thought that they could outsmart God, that they could outsmart their sin, and eventually paid a very high price. Church, let us put to death the works of the enemy in our life. This leads us to point number two. And here in number two, we're going to do a couple, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to read verses 11 and 12, then we're going to jump to 17 to 27, um, and, and you'll see why. But what I want you to see at this, uh, this point is that the right response to judgment is lament, not gloating. And I want you to see that from David. Verses 11 and 12 says this, it says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Verse 17 says this, And David lamented with, his, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your, on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircum uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or, or rain upon you, nor fields or of offerings. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, and life in death, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. You, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So you see, when, get, when David gets the news of Saul's death, he reacts in a very unexpected way. Saul was David's self-proclaimed enemy. Saul, the man who had tried to kill him multiple times, the man that had persecuted him for years and caused him unimaginable pain, was now dead. And what did David do? David mourned and lamented. Now let me ask you, shouldn't he be celebrating? As I read this, you know, images of like the death of Osama bin Laden come to mind, where people are rejoicing in the streets. When Saddam Hussein was, was you know, put down, like people were rejoicing because usually people rejoice whenever their oppressors fall. And yet David's reaction here is very different, very unexpected. The way he reacts to the death of his enemy to the death of his persecutor, of his oppressor, if you will, is by mourning and by lamenting. Why, though? Why does David re uh, react this way? Well, I have a couple of reasons that I believe David reacted this way. Number one, the gospel compels us to love our enemy. The first reason uh, for David's response to the death of Saul is because an understanding of God's love for us translates into love for our neighbor and of our enemies. 
To paraphrase John Piper, when we are filled with the love of God, it overflows into love and service for others. You see, because David understood God's love for him, a broken man, he did not rejoice in the fall of his enemy. He mourned the death of his enemy. We just read the lament of David, and can you hear the love that he had for Saul? Three times he says, how the mighty have fallen. Church, oh, that we would be like David in the age of polarization we live in. Oh, that we would love our enemy in the age we live in. In a world where people delight in, the, in bickering, where people delight in fighting and, 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 and humiliating each other. Even our very leaders today are increasingly resorting to insults and disparaging of their opponents. The church of Jesus Christ should stand in sharp contrast to the way that the world functions. How about instead of looking for the humiliation of our enemies, our opponents, we resolve to speak truth in love in a world that is saturated with insults and misrepresentation of people's opponents. How about we resolve to not be looking for enemies and opponents? Church, let me tell you, those that believe things differently than you, they're not your enemies. And even if they are, the Bible calls you to love them, to pray for them, to talk to them about Christ and point them to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, the gospel compels us to love our enemies. Not just to tolerate our enemies. Not just to tolerate our opponents. But to love them. Loving our enemy is a mark of a Christian. And unfortunately, uh, in the last few years, I feel like instead of the church affecting the way that life is being done in America the way life is being done in America is increasingly affecting the church in the way that we talk to one another, in the way that we push back with one another. It's okay to push back. I'm not saying that you don't have to stand for what you believe. All I'm saying is that when you do, you got to do so in love and in grace and pointing to Jesus. Church, that you know that the way that you talk about those that disagree with you matters. The way, actually, even the way that you talk about your president, for example, matters. Whether that is the current one or the past one, the way that you talk about your president matters. The way that you talk about those who sin differently than you matters. The way that you laugh or, or the way that you're silent and approve the disparaging of your opponents matters. Whether that is in social media or in person, it matters. And it matters not, uh, not only because those around you will see it, but also because it, reveal, it reveals what you truly believe about them in your heart. Whether you agree with people or not, whether they have hurt you or not, whether they have persecuted you or not, do they not need the same grace you and I received and didn't deserve? Are we as the children of God not called to loving them and to pointing them to Jesus? Church, let us be like David and love our enemy. This brings me to the second thing that I, that I think Jesus, uh, the, the second reason why I think David um, responded in this way. 
And that is because lament is appropriate in the life of a Christian. I want us to learn from David, church, how to appropriately lament. You see, lament is a part of the believer. So much so that the Psalms, one-third of the book of Psalms, is songs of lament. Now, I don't know about you, maybe it's because I'm Latino, or maybe it's because of the church that I grew up, or for, I don't know why, but inside of me, I have this tendency when people ask me, how are you, to just pretend that everything is perfectly fine. When the reality is, as Christians, we're not called to be Stoics. We are called to, uh, to, when we suffer, to suffer well, but that doesn't mean that we're not suffering. Now, since Paul, since Saul, I'm sorry, uh, had spent so many years persecuting David, we can easily forget that David had actually lost two friends. His best friend, Jonathan, and Saul, that although he was the enemy of David, David actually loved Saul. And he was thankful for Saul in many ways. Saul was a man David admired and loved, even when Saul was intent on destroying him. But not only did he lose Saul, he also lost his best friend, Jonathan. This guy, Jonathan, was his best friend. You read it with me in verse 26. Uh, David said this, he said, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David and Jonathan were best friends. They loved each other and they were like-minded in their zeal to see God glorified. I hate that I even have to clarify this, but I want to make sure that I do mention this, that when David says that Jonathan's love for him surpassed the love of women, that has no sexual overtones. Jonathan loved David uh, to the point that Jonathan gave up the throne of Israel so that David would be rightly anointed. But this is not anything weird. It is actually a shame that we are not able to understand a love between two friends without thinking you know, about it in, in, in awkward ways. So why am I saying this? Because David is hurting. David is hurting because the man he admired is gone and because his best friend is gone. But what does he do? He laments before the people. He laments before God and before the people. He expresses this loss and sorrow. You see, as Christians, we do not have to pretend we are not hurting, like I was saying a minute ago. We can and should be transparent. But the best way to deal with our pain is by bringing it to the Lord in lament. And this is a discipline that I believe as Christians we would do well to, to learn. The Bible is filled with songs of lament, not, o- not only in the Psalms. We actually have a book called Lamentations. John Calvin actually called the book of the Psalms uh, the anatomy of the human soul because in the Psalms we can find the ex- expression for all human emotions. And in the Psalms, we can learn how to bring our emotions to the Lord. And the way that David does that, and I think he does it so well, better than anyone in Scripture, is that he laments And church, we lament by bringing our pain before the Father. Not not by pretending that we are not suffering, but by bringing our suffering, our pain, before the Father. As we lament as Christians, I have a couple of things to say about our lament. Our lament is worship. Because by bringing our pain to God, we recognize that He is the only one that can actually fix our problems. He is the only solution to our pain. So our lament is worship. Our lament is theological. 
Because as we lament, we recognize the truth of sin and death in this world. And as we're bringing it to the Father, we see the contrast of that with a good God, with our good God, our Father, our benevolent Father. Our lament is prayer. Part of lamenting before God is asking the Lord to help us. Our lament is also hopeful because in it we remember God's promises for his children. Church, are you hurting today? Are you in pain today? Bring it to the Lord and know that he is near the brokenhearted. Are you hurting today? Make sure that you're not shaking your fist at God, but that you can honestly and and, and in rawness bring it before the Lord and cry out to him. Are you fearful? Confess it before him today. Are you hurting? Are you desperate? Cry out to the only one that can heal you, ultimately. To the one that loves you and holds your future in his hands. Now, this brings us to the one part we skipped. And that is the part where David deals with the Amalekite, and we're going to read it shortly. As we read it, I want you to see that David, as a king, he is a just king. And he is delivering, he's bringing about justice, though we sometimes misunderstand it. So let's read verses 13 through 16. And I want you to see there, it says this. It says, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, as you remember from earlier in the passage, the guy that brought new, the news to David about the passing of Saul and Jonathan was an Amalekite. He was um, part of the people that were enemies of the Lord. However, he has an interesting story because he, uh, he, he says he was so, a son of a sojourner. That means that he was part of the people of Israel. He, was, had, he had been adopted. He lived among the people of Israel. Um, and so whenever he comes to David and he tells him the story of the passing of Saul... His story, like I said, was very different to the one what we read in the previous chapter. The question is, is this guy lying? Most likely. The narrator had told us in the previous chapter uh, what he knew to be true. And uh, And though he doesn't tell us directly, this man was actually lying. Based on what we read, we know that this man is not being honest, or at least he's misrepresenting the story. The question is, why is this man lying to David? Well, most likely he was trying to garner some favor before the king. He was trying to make himself sound really good. And he was trying to make himself a hero in front of a mourning king. Now, we don't really know how he got hold of Saul's uh, crown and his armlet. But we can deduce that he brought them to David, hoping for some sort of reward or favor. After his mourning... David comes back to this guy and asks him for more details about the story. He asks, so where do you come from? To which the Amalekite replies that he is an Amalekite and son of the sojourner, as I mentioned. Now from this, we know that this man was acquainted with the law of God. We know that this man knew that that the law of God demanded that he honor the Lord's anointed. And yet, he thinks in the story he's making that he's making himself a hero by saying that he's slain the anointed of the Lord. 
We know this guy is lying. But David doesn't know that. This guy's trying to impress David, the king, and instead, this lie leads him to his death. You see, he tried to bribe David with a crown and an armlet. But the king instead judges him guilty of killing the anointed of the Lord. So then David said to him, Your blood on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit by looking at what both David and the Amalekite did. First, I want you to see that David rightfully condemns the Amalekite. When we read the story, it may at first appear as David being a little heavy-handed. I don't know about you, but the first time I read the story, I was like, well, that's a bit much. The guy was just trying to help. However, David was being just. David, uh, had David not executed this man, he would have been unjust and he, had been going, he would have been going against God's law. Sometimes justice feels heavy-handed because of the weight of the consequences, but justice stands just. <laughs> David rightfully condemned this man based on the information he had. God rightfully condemned this man for lying. Number two, the Amalekite actually deserved death. Now that the Amalekite came to David with a desire to bribe him and garner, found, uh, garner favor and approval, I'm sorry, he thought he could come to David and manipulate it. He saw an opportunity and he thought, if I just bring this before the king and I make up a cool story, I'm going to get favor with the king. I'm going to impress the king. And he turned a, a tragedy into a prophet for himself, or so he thought. He thought he could manipulate David. He thought his cunning and a bribe would be enough to impress the king. And boy, was he wrong. In his lie, he claimed to have killed the king of Israel. So the very thing he made up was what cost him his life. The third thing I want you to see, and I want to talk about this morning, is that church, we too, will one day stand before a king in judgment. Just like this Amalekite, the Bible tells us that we will one day stand before a king, a just king, the king, the creator of the universe. We will one day stand in judgment before him. And you know what? The good news about that is that our king is just and righteous, and he will deal justice. And actually, that sounds like a great thing, right? Unless you realize your fallenness and your sinfulness. And the fact that you do not deserve forgiveness. That the just thing for God to do with every single one of us would be to condemn us because of our rebellion. However, the Bible tells us that God does not delight in condemning the guilty. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. Uh, he says, it says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear God's heart for the wicked? It's not that he rejoices in, in, in condemning them. He actually desires that the wicked would turn to him in repentance and be saved and be delivered. You and I, church, will stand before the, before the king. And on, that, and on that day, let me ask you, when you stand before the king in judgment, what will you point to for salvation? What will your case be before the king? 
there are some who think they're really good. They, they, they truly think they're good, or at least not that bad. But the Bible tells us that we all have sinned and that fall short of the glory of God. And that left on our own, we stand condemned. The Bible tells us that not only are we not good, but because of our rebellion against God, we are enemies of God, the objects of his wrath. Now, like I said, some people genuinely think they're good. But in the same way, uh, but, be, but people think they're good in the same way that we all think we're good drivers, don't we? The reality is that you're only a good driver depending who you're you know, comparing yourself to. Now, we all think we're amazing drivers. We all think everybody else around us is just not good, but we're great drivers. It depends who you're comparing yourself with, right? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my family and I have recently gotten into board games. And a lot of times when I play with my kids, I smoke them. Let me tell you, I'm good, you know. My kids are five and eight, just in case you don't know them. Uh, and I am so good when I'm playing against them. But then sometimes we will have... Uh, Trace and Deb, who, they're not here this morning, but they come and they play games with us. Or, or now, you know, Jackie also plays. And they smoke me every single time. You know, Jackie's actually really good at board games. And so the reason I'm telling you this is because I am only a good, I'm only good at board games when I compare myself to my kids. When my kids are the standard, man, am I a champion. But when the standard is Trace or Deb, or Jackie, I'm terrible at games. Now, why am I saying this? Because in that same way, we often look around at others around us, and we may think we're pretty decent. But when the standard is our holy God, we fall short, way short. As a matter of fact, even if the standard were our own judgment, we still fall short. Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of my favorite theologians, he, he, he used to say that if, if at birth we, were all had been, we had all been given a recorder and put around our necks, a recorder that recorded every judgment we made, everything that we said was good and right, and at the end of our lives we were judged by our own judgment, we would all fall short. How much more if the standard is not our judgment but a holy God? The worst part of all of this is that there is nothing we can do on our own to earn salvation. Some people point to their good works thinking that they can earn salvation. Actually, most religions teach that as long as you're good and as long as your good works outweigh your bad works, uh, you know, you can save yourself. But there's no peace in that. There's no truth in that. But there's also no peace in that. How much pressure is that? The truth is that if you come to God on that day, and you try to bribe God with your good works, like the Amalekite before David, you will be sorely disappointed. It's not even that you don't have enough good works to bribe God, but it's the fact that good works and the things that you do is not even the right currency to buy your salvation. You cannot buy it. And this sounds like really bad news, doesn't it? But the reality is that it is good news because, you see, we don't need to buy salvation. We don't need to impress our king. Our king is not only a just judge, but he describes himself as patient, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's the king 
before whom you will stand one day. This very king knows that we cannot save ourselves. He is aware of our inability to save ourselves. And so as a good king that he is, he instead sent his son that lived the perfect life that you cannot live and that died the death that you and I deserve. That's the king that we serve. And for those, upon, for those who call upon the name of Jesus and put their trust in him for salvation, this good king offers them the gift of salvation. The key word being gift. Because you cannot earn it. No matter how hard you try, you cannot earn it. I'm going to ask the worship team to come to the front now. But I want to close this morning by asking you, do you know this Jesus who laid on his life so that you would have eternal life? Do you know this king that is not only a just judge, but who is also a kind father, a benevolent king that, is, uh, that, that has already provided salvation if you trust him, if you call upon his name? Do you know Jesus? Do you know this king? On that day when you stand before God in judgment, will you be pointing at yourself for salvation? Will you be pointing at the things that you've done to try to impress him? Will you too bring a, a, a crown and an armlet to try to impress a king? Or will you fall on your knees today and ask for that gift that he's freely giving for salvation? Church, let us pray this morning and respond to the Lord in worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that though we know we are fallen and broken and needy, we can look up, Lord, and your word tells us that we have a righteous king, a benevolent king who sent his son to pay for our sins. Father, we thank you because we have the cross that we can look back to and say, because of what Jesus did on that cross, I can stand before the judge and know that I am forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we sing to you in response to your word, Father, that you would receive our worship, that you would be honored. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship our King.
It is only by the work of Christ at the cross that we can stand before God justified, forgiven, and loved. It is only by His work that you and I stand here. I want to talk to three groups of people this morning as I close. I want to first ask you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not called upon Himself for, for, upon His name for salvation, please come talk to us. I'm going to have uh, the elders and their wives come to the front in just a second. We want to talk to you. Want to, we want to pray with you. If you just want to grab coffee, you know, sometime this week, just let us know. We, we want to be there with you. The second group of people I want to talk to is those who, like Saul, are passive against their sin and against the very things that will one day cost you your life. And you know who you are. I want, we, want to see, we want to pray with you this morning. We want to pray that you would take the step forward, that you would say, I now want to put to death the things of the flesh, the things that will lead to my death. Especially, let me talk to men, because since Adam, men have been passive against our own sin. And, and again, we've been passive in the way that we lead our families. If this is you, we want to pray with you this morning. And lastly, I want to pray, we want to pray for those of you who find yourselves like David in pain, hurting, and not knowing how to lament. We want to pray with you, and we want to encourage you to bring your pain to the Lord, to confess that you're hurting, and to know and trust that He is with you, whether you see Him or not. I want to invite those three categories of people to come. We want to pray for you guys. Actually, I'm going to call... The, the elders and their wives and some and community group leaders as well because I you know I hope we would have many people to pray for. Please come. But before we close, let me just close this this morning with the word of God. First, uh, this is from Colossians chapter one verses twenty one through twenty three. And if you are in Christ, if you have called upon the name of Jesus, this is speaking about you. I want you to hear this. It says, "And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind." doing evil deeds 
he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Church, God bless you. Have a good day.